All right, good morning again and welcome. For those of you that are watching online, we want to especially welcome you. We are at Cornerstone, and at Cornerstone, we inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, knowing that following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life, as well as bringing glory to God in the process. Some of you will be watching on demand online, and some of you will be watching in a, current, in a coming Sunday online live, 9, 10, and 11 on Sunday mornings, live streaming. Well, kind of, sort of. And uh, then we also are here on site this morning, so welcome. If you are new to Cornerstone, we would love to be able to stay in touch with you and welcome you personally. And the way that you can do that is by letting us know who you are. You can text the word NEW to our church number, 603-225-2550. We are coming to the conclusions of the series that we've been in over the summer, where we've been looking through the Psalms in a series called permission to be real, permission to be real, where we've looked at different kinds of psalms. We've looked at imprecatory psalms as one of my favorite new words this, uh, this summer. Does anybody remember what an imprecatory psalm is? Psalm of judgment and cursing, yes, so that was interesting. And uh, we've looked at praises, we've looked at petitions, we've had uh, patterns for prayer. We've seen how throughout the Psalms, the psalmists express how they truly feel. And that's why I've called the series Permission to Be Real. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded that it's okay to be honest with God because he knows anyway. And it's okay for us to be honest with one another. Now, today we're going to be looking at a different kind of psalm. There aren't that many in the Psalms, in uh, the book of Psalms. However, there are about five-ish or so that are historical psalms. They are psalms that recount part of the history of Israel. And it's more than just a history lesson. It's an invitation to gain wisdom. Remember in our series on the paradigm for reading and understanding the Bible that number five was this, that the Bible is wisdom literature, and that is that human flourishing is the goal, that part of the reason we have the scriptures is that God wanted to give us the wisdom that we need in order to flourish. And by looking at the historical Psalms, we're reminded of history and we are invited to gain wisdom from it. In 1 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he included some stories that were from Israel's history, using them as an example. And he very explicitly stated that that was in part the purpose why we have those scriptures. Here's the message translation of 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It says, these are all warning markers. He's saying these stories that we have part of which that he's already been recounting in this letter. They are warning markers, danger in our history books, written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. In other words, it's an opportunity to learn from history. And so today, we are talking about avoiding and overcoming mistakes or failures. So today's message is called Fail Safe as we look at Psalm 78. And the question that we're going to be asking and answering is this. 
How do I avoid and recover from failure? How do I avoid and recover from failure? Now, uh, even though there aren't there many of this kind of psalm, I, I think it's very, uh, it's very good to cover this one because we are all going to experience failure in some form or fashion. And you need to know how to avoid it and then how to recover from it. So today we're talking about failure. And here is the lesson that we are going to see and apply from Psalm 78. And it's today's bottom line. And that is that when things go awry, remember and apply. When things go awry, remember and apply. We're going to see some things that we need to remember and we're going to see how they can be applied to our lives. And then the challenge, the practical application for today will be to, as we look through these different actions, to pick at least one that you can apply, that you can put into practice this week. So let's look at Psalm 78, how to avoid and overcome failure. Now, Psalm 78 is a, is a little bit long. It's definitely the longest psalm that we've done in this series, so I'm, I'm actually not going to read the entirety of it, uh, but if you would like to follow along, that's always a good idea. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation, which is the translation that you have on the tables in front of you, and if you're using a device to follow along, pick the New Living Translation. Psalm 78, beginning at verse 1. O oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. Stories we've heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. So that was a fairly long introduction where it gives the purpose, and now he's going to get into the history with its specific examples. Verse 9. The warriors of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned their backs and fled on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his instructions. They forgot what he had done, the great wonders he had shown them, the miracles he did for their ancestors on the plain of Zoan in the land of Egypt. Now then he's going to go into a more extended description of what happened in Israel, uh, in Egypt as Israel escaped from Egypt. We're going to skip down to verse 32 and pick up the story there. But in spite of this, the people kept sinning. Despite his wonders, they refused to trust him. So he ended their lives in failure. 
their years in terror. When God began killing them, now that's a little bit striking, but that, that will get your attention. And uh, also, it also indicates something that I think I might do as the next series, handling some of these difficult passages in the scriptures, but that's where we are. When God began killing them, they finally sought him. They repented and took God seriously. Then they remembered that God was their rock, the, the most, that God most high was their redeemer. But all they gave him was lip service. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They did not keep his covenant. Yet, verse 38, he was merciful and forgave their sins and did not destroy them all. Many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury, for he remembered that they were merely mortal, gone like a breath of wind that never returns. Again, there's an extended description of what happened during that time, and then I'm going to pick it up at verse 65 as it goes to the conclusion of the psalm. Then the Lord rose up as though waking from sleep, like a warrior aroused from a drunken stupor. He routed his enemies and sent them to eternal shame. But he rejected Joseph's descendants. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He, in, he chose instead the tribe of Judah and Mount Zion, which he loved. There he built his sanctuary as high as the heavens, as solid and enduring as the earth. He chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the ewes and lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. He cared for them with a true heart and led them with skillful hands. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would indeed speak to us, that we would learn the lessons that we need to see and apply as we look at the history of Israel and your faithfulness, your power, and your goodness towards your people. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to obey. And speak to every single person watching, listening, or here with me today so that they will be able to say without exception and without hesitation that we have heard from you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so that's Psalm 78. Let's dig into it and pick apart some of the lessons that we can pick up in here. You might have noticed as we were reading through it that there was often this theme of remembering and forgetting, remembering and forgetting. So that's why I've picked as the bottom line something that has to do with remembering. When things go awry, remember and apply. And we'll look at what those things are that we're supposed to remember. But also notice that it's action-oriented, that you're supposed to do something with what you hear. So first off, let's talk about remembering. You see throughout the psalm an encouragement and the opportunity to recall 
things that God has done. So the first point is this step. I'm going to give you three steps, all beginning with R, that are kind of your uh, failure recovery system. So if you have experienced failure, and, and you know, I'm sure most of us have, then you need some way of coming back from that. So this is your recovery system when you face failure. And the first one is to recall. What are you going to recall? We see examples of God's faithfulness, his power, and his goodness. One of the things that I noticed uh, when I was uh, immediately started reading the psalm is that although there is a good deal of emphasis on people's failures, the bigger theme is God's goodness and his faithfulness through it all. That our hope is not in us overcoming are overcoming our failures, our hope is actually in God's rescue. So what the psalmist is doing is reminding, encouraging the people to recall God's faithfulness, power, and goodness. It starts out in that extended uh, um, introduction to the psalm, and I think this is actually beginning at verse 1. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. And remember, whenever you see the word listen in the scriptures, that almost always means not just let the words bounce into your ears, but to do something with it. When we say God heard our prayers, what we're saying is not just that he knew the content of our prayers, but that he acted on them. And so when we are encouraged to listen, we are being encouraged to act on it as well. Open your ears to what I'm saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. Now, we're not used to seeing the word parable used in this way, but basically a parable is a story that has a lesson. Now, most of the time when we think of parables, we think of Jesus' parables because it was said that he always spoke in parables. And usually those stories were made-up stories that were intended to speak, to, uh, to teach a particular point. But here, the word parable is being used as a story that has a lesson. These stories happen to be true. Look at what he says in the next part of the introduction. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. So a parable is a story that has a lesson. And what he's saying is, here are some stories, and they have a lesson for you. But we have to uncover them. They are, it's wisdom literature. You're supposed to think about it. You're supposed to reflect upon it, and you're supposed to gain wisdom from it. Uh, I'll teach you hidden lessons from the past, stories we have heard and known. And I like that contrast there. He's saying, here are stories that you've all heard before. You've memorized these stories. These are not going to be new stories, but there are lessons for you to learn no matter how familiar you are with those stories. Stories we've heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. And here he begins an extended um, description, but also exhortation to make sure that we recall these stories, that they are not lost, that they are, in fact, well known from generation to generation. In verse 4, this is highlighted. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation so we see there this pattern that begins in the Old Testament in the very first books of the Bible, continues throughout New Testament times of the importance 
of passing the stories, passing the faith, passing faith on to the next generation. Now, I haven't talked about it a lot recently, but I still virtually all the time am thinking about children's ministry at Cornerstone. You might look around and say, well, we don't have that many children. Do we really need to invest in that? And the answer is absolutely yes. We have a responsibility to steward the children we do have, and we have a responsibility that when new people come in the door that there is something for their children. So I'll be talking more about that in the coming weeks. But you see this pattern throughout the scriptures of passing the faith on from one generation to the next. And what are we talking about? Not the people's failures, but we are talking about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. Now, the bulk of this psalm, and I hope you will go back and read through the entirety of it, you just see failure after failure of the people. But what does the psalmist see? sees in the middle of all of that failure, all that destruction, the glorious deeds of the Lord, his power, and his mighty wonders. And what's the purpose behind this recalling and this making sure that the faith is passed on, that the stories are well known from generation to generation? Because we are always only one generation from our faith being extinguished. That will never happen because it will get passed on, but it does have to be passed on. You see this pattern in verse 7. So each generation, what's the purpose of doing this? Why do we want to recall this? Why do we want to teach it to our children? Why do we want to remember? So that each new generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. One of the things that I've seen over and over again. I saw it in my life. I see it in others' lives. And we have a fresh batch of students who are going off to college, many of whom who have grown up in the faith. But there becomes a transition point where you have to take the faith that you grew up in, that you heard about, the stories that you were told, and you have to internalize it. You have to make it your own. And unless that handoff happens, unless you go through that process, then it's not going to stick because your parents' faith, your brother's faith, your friend's faith is not going to carry you. You have to internalize it. You have to let it become your own. And that's what he's talking about. So that each generation should set its hope anew on God. We want to recall that. And what does that look like? Not forgetting what God has done and replying, responding in obedience. And now we begin to transition into the examples that we're supposed to learn from. And this is the way the psalmist describes it in verse 8. Then they, this next generation, our children, will not be like their ancestors. What were their ancestors like? Stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. So he says, when I look back over the history of our people, I see a lot of failure. And I want to make sure that our children don't repeat those mistakes. So they have to learn it 
and they have to think about it and meditate on it. They have to apply it. And so that, again, is a reflection of the kind of literature that the scriptures are. In the paradigm, we said that the Bible is meditation literature designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. And so we see in the historical Psalms a kind of lab of this where people are working this out, meditating on the stories to gain wisdom because the Bible is wisdom literature. And the way that that's done is it's through ongoing reflection and then response, remembering and applying. So it gives two primary examples. The first one is the tribe of Ephraim. Beginning at verse 9, it says, The warriors of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned their backs and fled on the day of battle. Interesting thing about that is that there's not really a specific story that we can tie this to, but it, I think, is, uh, what's the word? Illustrative, symbolic of, it, it's, it's a a um, kind of like a byline for the tribe of Ephraim. Now, you may know your history of ancient Israel. It started as a united kingdom in, uh, in the land of Israel under first Saul, then David, then Solomon. But then the kingdom split, and there were two tribes that stayed in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. That was Judah and Benjamin. And then the other 10 tribes split off and established their capital in the north. Just uh, in the south, Judah became the uh, number one way to refer to that kingdom because that was the predominant tribe. And so that was the kingdom of Judah. In the north, it was called the kingdom of Israel, but the predominant tribe of those 10 was Ephraim. Ephraim was the predominant tribe. So when it's referencing this, it's saying of those two kingdoms, most of the kings in the south, if you know your, your history, were bad. There were a couple of good ones. All of the ones in the north got a bad reputation. None of them passed the test. And so Ephraim became kind of like the byword for rebellion and faithlessness to God. And so he's saying, look, here's what happened. Ephraim was up there, and they were called into battle. Sometimes uh, some people think that this is uh, more symbolic than an actual event. They were, they were called into battle. The, 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 the trumpets were blown, but in the end, they didn't come through. They fled on the day of battle. And to support that maybe this is a metaphorical description of the people, you look at the next verse. It says, it's explaining. How, how, how did this happen? Well, they did not keep God's covenant, and they refused to live by his instructions. So they, they just kind of blew off following the Lord. And so when the battle call came, they were nowhere to show, they, they were nowhere to be found by reminding and recalling this, the psalmist is hoping to inspire a different example. So when things go wrong, when things go awry, we are supposed to remember and apply. The first step in this recovery program is to recall. And what are you recalling? You're recalling God's goodness and his faithfulness. A couple of um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was as, as uh, recent as last week, in one of our 
discussion groups afterwards, we were talking about this, and I was talking about how um, I had just found out bad news about one of our vehicles, and it's time for our vehicles to get inspected, and it's going to pass inspection, but just by the hair of its chinny-chin-chin, right? So the next year, the mechanic is saying, I'm not so sure. And I remember just my first response to that was, ugh, because I don't know about you, but I hate dealing with car problems. I just hate it. I don't want to, I hate, I, I haven't looked for a job in like almost 20 years, but I remember what it's like. I hate looking for a job and I hate not having a reliable car. Those are two of my, my the things that I hate the most. And so when I got that news, I was like, ah, I hate this. <laughs> but I immediately kind of rebuked myself because I recalled my history. And my history is God's faithfulness and goodness to me, especially when it comes to cars. We counted up one time, and in various ways, and through various people, and in various circumstances, I think the total is something like 13 or 14 vehicles that have been either given outright to us or provided for us. I don't have anything to worry about when it comes to cars if I recall God's goodness and his faithfulness. So the first step in avoiding failure is to recall who God is and what he has done. Secondly, it is to repent. That's what I did when I hurt, when I recognized that response in myself about that bad news and then turned around and said, wait a second. I never have to worry about cars. If, if the past is any indication, everything is going to be okay. I don't have to worry. I don't have to complain. I repent. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind. You think about things differently, and as a result, you act differently. It's a both and, and that's why I said we repent in both word and deed. Now, Let's look at this uh, because there uh, wasn't a lot of good examples of repentance. It's encouraged in this psalm, but when it looks, when you look at the history, it's like pretty spotty record. But look, but look at how the Lord responds. Because remember, what we're doing is we're calling God's goodness, His faithfulness, all of that kind of stuff. So, in verse twenty-one. It says, when the Lord heard them, he was furious. And if you look in the context, I believe it's you know, one of the many times where they were complaining against the Lord, where they were, uh, where they were bickering and just not, get, it was just, they, and, and the Lord looks down and it says it made him furious. But what is his response? We see that in the first part of verse 23. But he commanded the skies to open. And in this case, it's talking about God's provision for them that they were complaining about not having enough. And God, in response to that, it kind of made him a little angry. And then, and, and, and picture, what do you expect? I got angry, and then I, what does God do? It made him furious, but he responded by opening the skies, by being generous, by providing for them, by answering their complaint with provision. And so we see God being so faithful, so kind, and returning good for evil. It reminded me of Romans 2, 4. This is the New International Version of the verse. 
Or do you show contempt, Paul writing to the church at Rome, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, talking about God, his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, oh, I really, I'm concerned about, you know, fill in the blank, my son, my daughter, my dad, my mom, my friend, and I guess they just have to hit rock bottom. Things have to go horribly wrong for them, and then they'll turn to God. I've observed that sometimes people hit rock bottom and keep digging. So it's not a guarantee. Other times you think, well, it, you know, if, if they would just, if, if things would go wrong is what you're saying, then maybe they would get right. But that's not the case. And sometimes God uses the opposite approach. Now here's the danger in that. Sometimes we think, oh, everything is going well. I must be in good shape with God. I don't have anything to repent of. I, should, I don't have to examine my life at all because if God was upset at me or if he wanted me to change my ways, he'd stomp that sucker flat, you know? That's, that's just how, no, that's not how God is. So on the one hand, don't wait for, uh, don't keep digging. That's a good, that's good. But also don't wait for God to make things go wrong in your life to consider whether you need to repent or not. Because sometimes you need to repent. Everything is going super fabulous, and you still need to repent. So back to Psalm 78. It says, but in spite of this, in spite of God's kindness, in spite of his returning good for evil, the people kept sinning. They kept digging. Despite his wonders, they refused to trust him. And I think that's so interesting. You see the parallels, and I highlighted it there. Keep sinning is equated with refusing to trust him. In other words, they knew the stories. They recalled God's goodness and faithfulness, and they still wouldn't trust him. They still didn't trust him. But then they turned things around a little bit. Verse 35 they, they remembered that God was their rock. Good. They were calling. They are remembering who God is, the, that God most high was their redeemer. Good, good. And then there's that word, but. But all they gave him was lip service. They lied to him with their tongues. And that's why I said we repent in both word and deed. This is an especial danger for those of us, like myself, who grew up in the church, who know all the answers, who could uh, pass all the Bible quizzes, slide in and out of a Sunday, class with, Sunday school class with ease. We know all the stuff. But sometimes we don't walk our talk. And that's what it's saying here. They... They, they, they turned things around a little bit. They were saying the right things. They gave him lip service, but they lied with their tongues because their heart was not there. If somebody were looking at your life, would they hear all the right things but see something a little bit different? Our lack of integrity sometimes murders our testimony, our witness to the world 
and brings dishonor rather than honor to the Lord whose name we bear. So here's the process for recovering from uh, uh, and avoiding failure. Recall God's goodness, repent in word and deed, and then what is the next step in this remember and apply process? It's in the conclusion where we are encouraged to receive God's provision for past failures and power for the future. One of the best things about the gospel to me is that not only because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, where my sins were paid for, my debt was paid in full, God is not holding that sin debt over me anymore. That's good. It takes care of my past. But it also gives us power for the future. He comes and resides in us by the power of his Holy Spirit and helps us to avoid sin, avoid destruction, avoid the, the failures that are recounted here. So he makes provision, because remember, this story is more about God's goodness than the people's failure your story is more about God's goodness than your failures, but it has to be received. Now, here's where I see this, and this requires a little bit of meditation and reflection, but in the conclusion, it starts out like this. Then the Lord rose up as though waking from sleep, and I love this, like a warrior aroused from a drunken stupor. This, as far as I know, this is the only time I can think of where the Lord is, is uh, symbolized by a, a drunken uh, uh, soldier. So uh, take from that what you will. But what's the, what's the idea here is somebody was asleep. The battle call is made, and unlike Ephraim in the beginning of this psalm, this person is actually going to rise up and meet the challenge. And who is that person that takes care of it? It is the Lord. He raises up as if from a deep sleep. He's like a warrior who has been drinking too much, but then that battle cry is sounded and his mind clears miraculously and immediately. And what does the Lord do? He does a couple of different things. Number one, it says he chose instead the tribe of Judah. And this again is the contrast between Ephraim in the northern kingdom and Judah in the southern kingdom. And what he's saying is that Ephraim failed, but God is going to act and he's going to rescue and he's going to redeem through Judah. So he acts by cho choosing to work through this particular tribe. He also chooses Mount Zion, which he loved. Mount Zion is just another way of referring to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem where the temple was built, and you see that referred to in the next passage. There he built his sanctuary as high as the heavens, as solid and enduring as the earth. And then, so he chooses a people, he chooses a place, and then he chooses a person. He chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. And what does David do? He fulfills that calling of a faithful shepherd. It says in the last verse, he cared for them, talking about David, with a true heart and led them with skillful hands. Now, another pillar of our paradigm of how to read and understand the Bible is that the Bible is messianic literature. 
What does that mean? It means that ultimately the Bible is the story of God's setting things right through his son. Now put yourself in the context. Remember, context is king. Put yourself in the, in the context of someone reading this psalm. It was probably written when the sanctuary was still standing. And they're saying, despite all of our failures, look how good faithful God has been. He has chosen the people of Judah. He's established his home, his sanctuary. He's taken up residence with us in Jerusalem. Look at this beautiful temple. And he has chosen his servant David. He's put a faithful, good, skilled shepherd over us. Isn't God good? Isn't God faithful? And then someone in exile on the other side of the world as far as they're concerned, far away from Jerusalem, the people, his tribe, has been scattered. The sanctuary has been destroyed and there is no king on the throne in Jerusalem. What's going on? Has God finally given up on us? Has God finally said enough and let his anger overcome his mercy? But what this does to us and to the people, I think, in that time was point them towards a future where God would display his faithfulness once again. And now, in our here and now, God has chosen a people Look around. God has chosen a people. And he has established a place. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to, in, to, to dwell in the church, fire, flames of uh, uh, tongues of fire came down, wind blew. This is exactly what happened when God symbolically took up residence in his temple. What was God teaching us through that? Look around. The, the, the place is no longer a building or a place where you can stick a pin in a map. Wherever the people of God are, God has taken up residence in them. And so he has been faithful to provide a people his place is now wherever those people are, and he has appointed a king who will never disappoint, who will never not be on the throne, because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to this king, and he will rule and reign forever. That is the gospel in Psalm 78. And so I will encourage everyone every week to say yes to this king, to allow God to take up residence in your heart, to forgive you for the past based on what he's done on the cross and to write a new future for you as you submit to and follow Jesus. If you're doing that now for the first time, I would love to know that so we can celebrate it. It's the best decision you will ever make in your life and resource you in your new life with Christ. So one way you can do that, whether you're here or watching online, listening online, is to text the word YES, Y-E-S, to our church number, 603-225-2550.
Today we've been talking about failure. And we've seen in Psalm 78 that when things go awry, we remember and apply. We recall, we repent, and we receive. We receive God's provision. So I'm going to ask you to think about this and in your groups to discuss it. Pick one action this week to apply. Of those three steps of recalling and repenting and receiving, which one is most applicable to your life right now? And then now we're going to make this application, and that is to celebrate communion. Communion is a remembrance. Jesus said in summing up this act that we are to do this in remembrance of him. So I invite you to take the elements of communion. First off, we need the bread. The bread is a symbol of God, of Jesus' body. And when he was describing how we celebrate this, it says that he broke the bread and that that was symbolic of the broken body of Christ that we do this to remember that he suffered and died for us. And it's our our way of personalizing it. It's not just something that happened in ancient history. It's something that has application now and has to be accepted and received individually and personally. I can't eat your lunch for you. And so also I cannot have faith on your behalf. You have to receive it individually and personally. And so we take the bread representative of Jesus' body and we receive it remembering his sacrifice for us. And then in like fashion, we take the cup The cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus. And in Hebrews, we're told that the blood was sprinkled on the altar in Old Testament worship. And why, did, why, why was that prescribed? Well, when you saw the blood, that was evidence. It was evidence that a death had occurred. And that death paid your debt of sin. And so we are encouraged to look at this cup and to remember that the blood of Jesus was spilled, that the debt for our sin has been paid, and we drink of it, internalizing it, receiving it, remembering that we are forgiven because of what Jesus did. So he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now in just a second, You'll have an opportunity, as we always do, to discuss what we've talked about today. And I just want to highlight one of the questions, the one that we're starting with. Can you think of any past failures that you look, at, look back on now with laughter? Look back on with laughter now. I didn't think it would be a great way to start the group by saying, tell us about your worst failure ever. So pick something that's a little bit humorous, that's a little bit lighthearted, that'll be a little bit safer and easier for everyone. We've all got them. Would you pray with me? And then we'll be dismissed for our groups. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the reminder of your goodness, your kindness, your provision for us, that 
no failure is final because you have won the victory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recall your goodness. Give us the grace to repent. And thank you for offering forgiveness, new life, and the leadership of our Lord Jesus in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.